Good evening. We're so happy to see all of you here this evening. I'm Judy Cooper, the coordinator of public programs here at the Pratt, and I encourage you to, uh, on your way out, to stop and pick up a copy of our May-June calendar so you can see all of the things that are happening. Uh, one of the things that's not in there is that Jennifer Weiner will be here on June 18th, I believe. But anyway, it's not on our website yet, but it will be up there. So if you're a fan of hers, um, mark your calendar. Um, we're delighted to um, present this program this evening with AIA Baltimore. Oh, and I must say that downstairs in the Central Hall is the exhibit, AIA's exhibit of the award-winning buildings from this year. So if you'll come back and see that at some point, I think it'll be here for another month or so. Um, so we're pleased to present this, this evening's program with AIA Baltimore and Baltimore Architecture Foundation and Johns Hopkins University Press. It's my um, pleasure to welcome to the podium Melissa Blair, who's the co-author of this wonderful book with Dr. Richard Streiner. Thank you. Um, it's with great pleasure that I get to introduce you to Richard Streiner. Um, it was certainly happy fortune that brought us together on this project. Um, not only did our collaboration result in this book, but personally I gained a mentor and a lifelong friend. Um, Rick is a professor of history at Washington College and the um, author or co-author of 10 books on subjects ranging from presidential history to architecture and film. And I have to tell you that six of those 10 books he wrote in the last 10 years. So he's a prolific guy. Um, he's a regular contributor to the New York Times Disunion series on the Civil War and also to the History News Network. Um, Rick was the founding president of the Art Deco Society of Washington and the leader of its first preservation campaigns, um, responsible for saving um, many of the buildings included in this book. Um, Rick is determined, astute, witty, and full of life. Um, I have learned by his example that when you are really passionate about something, you just dig in and do it. Um, I also learned from him how to have a good time while you're working hard. Um, he is one of our country's leading experts on Art Deco, and he has a true gift for bringing the past to life. Um, you're all in for a real treat tonight. So ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Richard Streiner. I am so pleased and honored to be here, and I'm so honored to be introduced by this wonderful lady. Our literary partnership was a delight from, well, I would say start to finish, but we, we may do other books, too. Uh, what I plan to do is to talk a little bit about Art Deco generally, uh, talk about some of the particular uh, examples in our two neighbor cities, show you some pictures uh, drawn from the book, um, but not too many because I want to take questions from you and uh, talk with you uh, about all of this. Uh, I am also willing, within reason, to share war stories about some of those preservation battles from long ago. Uh, I was right in the center of it. And uh, it's never pleasant when one has to fight to uh, achieve something good, but one sometimes finds the joy of battle in the midst of it all. At least I did. So, uh, anyway, I'm going to start um, by talking about Art Deco. 
I know we, uh, we have many architects here tonight and connoisseurs of architecture. Many of you are perhaps familiar with this uh, sort of design already. You probably know that in 1925, a key exposition was held in Paris that was a major theme giver for the Art Deco movement. The term Art Deco was unknown in the 1920s and 30s. It was coined in the 1960s, used for a retrospective exhibition in 1966, and then adopted as a book title in 1968 by a British art historian named Bevis Hillier. During the 20s and 30s, this kind of design was known by many different names, modern, modernistic, other terms. Um, What was it? Well, uh, on our radio uh, interview with Dan Rodericks today, uh, Dan said that in some cases you just know it when you see it. Uh, You look at iconic examples of it, the the shimmering crown of the Chrysler building, and that is it, (laughs) without a doubt. Um, It's sometimes simple, but not always. Sometimes in studying any subject, uh, people get hung up on, on the notion that there's a perfect classificatory scheme, perfect labels you know, for something, and either it is or it isn't, and, and so on. And sometimes that proves out, but sometimes it doesn't, especially when the thing in question is complex, and one has to do justice to that. What we decided to do in this book was to look at the entire range of design movements that were generally in play between the world wars. It worked out uh, to span a very broad range of ideas and tendencies, and it was a polarized range, uh, a dialectical war of words uh, between uh, what might be called militant traditionalists and militant modernists. Uh, not the first time nor the last time that such polarized you know, arguments about design and design symbolism would take place. But between the world wars, for many reasons, Uh, It had great intensity. It was played out with particular ferocity in regard to design on the National Mall in Washington, D.C., where the traditionalists uh, uh, were advocating, and among their champions was President Franklin D. Roosevelt, uh, the modern versions of classicism that were called for by the uh, Macmillan Plan of 1901-02, never completed but resulting, among other things, in the federal triangle enclave of of colonnaded classical buildings, the National Art Gallery that Andrew Mellon um, paid for, designed by John Russell Pope, many of the buildings of picture postcard Washington, um, the Lincoln Memorial, the Jefferson Memorial, under construction during the 1930s. And all the while, there was a uh, a derisive (laughs) disdainful chorus from radical modernists who condemned uh, empty gestures to dead architecture who, who insisted that design strive toward a more rational future. Um, between the world wars, radical modernism on one extreme and fairly militant classicism on the other extreme were polemically at war. But in, in the scorched earth in between, there was a middle range of design. Many attempts to harmonize the, the um, polarized uh, tendencies, many attempts to synthesize, reconcile, and bring together some of the major ideas that were in play. And there were a number of examples of this. Some people choose to call them styles. Well, there's something to be said for that sometimes, except that they would often overlap and combine. You'll see buildings demonstrating, you know, a touch of this, a touch of that. What do you call them? Well, they're eclectic, certainly. Um, There was uh, a very important fusion of classicism and modernism in the design displayed at the Paris Exposition of 1925. 
there were uh, fusions of classicism and modernism that this very building exemplifies. Modernized classicism, some called it at the time. In Washington, uh, one of the great exemplars and theme givers was the Folger Shakespeare Library, designed by Paul Philippe Cray. Clearly classical in its inspiration, but no classicism like anything, you know, deriving from ancient Greece or Rome or the Renaissance for that matter. Streamlined, simplified. Um, is it Art Deco? Well, one can split hairs, you know, all evening. It certainly relates to the middle range of design where Art Deco in its Parisian form played an important role. And one can find many buildings, especially public buildings, that are modernized classicism in this sense, with a lot of ornamentation drawn directly from the 1925 Paris Exposition. So what are they? We're not going to drive ourselves crazy with perfect definitions. They're all occupying a related, interrelated range of design, and they pertain, and so we sought to be inclusive in our coverage. And then there's streamlining, uh, a design fad that uh, really took off in the 1930s, inspired originally by the functional dynamics of uh, reducing wind resistance and maximizing fuel efficiency and speed in moving vehicles, but then a fad that quickly caught on, you know, to many, many objects that were not designed to move at all, let alone move fast, but it just looked wonderful. The symbolism in 1930s Depression America was dynamic, hopeful, and it manifested itself in architecture, residential, commercial, and to some extent public and institutional. And there are many examples of what some call the streamlined style. Call it a style? Well, if you find really scintillating, pure examples of it, you can call it that if you want, but you can also find these eclectic buildings that have, in addition to floral ornamentation derived from the 1925 Paris show, uh, classical uh, inspiration, symmetry, hierarchy, uh, rounded contours, what is it? It all pertains to what we chose to study under the rubric of Art Deco. It made sense to us. Um, anyway, we studied this design in both cities in as comprehensive a manner as possible. And in a moment, I'm going to show you some pictures, illustrations from the book. But before I do that, um, I want to comment briefly on my own earlier involvement. Uh, I was in grad school long time ago, when I uh, began to get interested in the architecture of this period. I grew up in Washington, D.C., and uh, in my early 20s, I began to look at my own city with, you know, different eyes, and I began to see, you know, a lot of these buildings that I had been dimly aware of before, but that suddenly began to strike me as being simply wonderful. And as soon as I discovered them, you know, they got blown off the face of the earth. <laughs> which made me very angry. <laughs> uh, I was a, uh, um, an introverted bookworm at that point in my life, so my anger had no particular place to go, but through a process of personality development that I will not impose upon you to describe, I changed and decided to fight. And in 1982, I and others founded this nonprofit, the Art Deco Society of Washington, and we started fighting right away. Um, three of our, uh, we didn't win them all, uh, but we did win some big ones. Um, our first preservation battle in 1983 was an emergency, uh, the threatened demolition of the architectural centerpiece of Greenbelt, Maryland, one of uh, 
a handful of planned model suburbs built by the federal government under the New Deal. And this particular building was the architectural centerpiece in use as an elementary school, and the Prince George's County Board of Education decided it needed to be replaced <laughs> because it was old. And we were able to intervene effectively with support from the mayor, city council, Greenbelt, and Senator Paul Sarbanes, too, uh, New Deal icon. Uh, so um, that preservation fight didn't take very long. Uh, then we began to uh, struggle to save the streamlined Greyhound bus terminal in downtown Washington, D.C. Designed by William S. Arrowsmith of the Louisville, Kentucky firm of Wishmeyer, Arrowsmith, and Ellswick, same firm that designed the Baltimore Greyhound terminal, which was built here a year after the one in Washington. Well, that Greyhound terminal sat on the single most valuable piece of commercial real estate in the nation's capital in an unprecedented real estate boom with a uh, mayor, Marion Barry, who was not particularly fond of historic preservation in the downtown business district. Long struggle. But nowhere near as long as our struggle to save the 1938 Silver Theater and Silver Spring Shopping Center in Silver Spring. That fight took 20 years. It became, to some extent, a war of attrition. There was also a war of <laughs> bushwhacking, <laughs> deception, <laughs> stealth, uh, surprise attacks. I could... Uh, talk for hours about that one and I promise not to. It took 20 years and finally it started in 1984 and in 2004 the Silver Theater reopened as the East Coast home of the American Film Institute and that took some doing. Um, we couldn't have done it without the right kind of county executive in Montgomery County and it took several elections you know, for that to happen. Well that's probably enough war stories. No, it's certainly enough war stories. Let me see uh, what I can do about getting these images and how do we make that? Is that as big as it can go? Um, we're going to start with Baltimore. Um, oh, that's good. Uh, these are the Semester Parkway Apartments on Park Heights Avenue, built in 1939, designed by the architect Hal Miller, who designed several other uh, important deco buildings in Baltimore. Let's see. Am I aiming this right or wrong? All right. The Montgomery Ward Warehouse, recently, wonderfully uh, adapted uh, on Washington Boulevard and Monroe Street, built between 1925 and 1929, designed by W.H. Macaulay. The Hutzler's Department Store on Howard Street, built in several campaigns, 1932 and then uh, a second um, Addition, uh, an addition in 1941 designed by James Edmonds, Jr., the illustrious Senator Theater, whoops, on York Road, opened in 1939, designed by John Jacob Zink of Baltimore. I'm going to pause here to reiterate a point I made during our uh, radio talk earlier today. Um, one of the points of commonality between our two cities with respect to this kind of design is the work of cinema architect John Jacob Zink. Uh, he uh, lived here in Baltimore and worked out of his home. Uh, he designed dozens of theaters uh, in this city and in Washington, D.C. One of the things that interested me in studying the Washington movie theater scene is that um, in those days, the uh, Hollywood film studios owned their own chains of cinemas. Uh, I believe it was in the 1940s that that was broken up via antitrust action. But uh, they, the one particular studio would dominate a particular geographical market, and in Washington it was Warner Brothers. 
And through agreements with other studios, they would show, you know, Paramount, MGM, Fox films, but their own, you know, got, got the favorite treatment. Uh, so it was Warner Brothers that was calling the tune, and the commissions to design these theaters went to two, uh, two, two design firms. Well, Zinc was in private practice. About half of the Warner's theaters in Washington were designed by the firm of John Eberson in New York, um, known as the Dean of American Theater Architects, his firm designed many, many theaters all over the world. A real power to be reckoned with in theater design, John Eberson. Uh, but just as often, Warner Brothers gave the commission to just John Jacob Zink, who worked out of his home in Baltimore. A very interesting pattern. This is the Ambassador Theater, designed by John Zink on Liberty Heights Avenue, completed in 1935. Uh, unfortunately, this building was, was uh, substantially damaged by a recent fire, but it is the object of uh, recent preservation interest. I believe it was recently given a preliminary degree of protection by the city's Commission on uh, Historic and Architectural Preservation. Uh, what might be done with this building in the future remains to be seen, but as you see, it's a glorious uh, asymmetrical <laughs> design. This is the interior of the uh, Brooklyn Theater, South Hanover Street, 1937 and 1941, redone in two campaigns, and the murals that you see here are now on display in Club Charles. Uh, Melissa did the research on that. I wrote the history of Brooklyn, and I've never seen it before. Well, you will probably want to direct your question to Melissa. She's the one who did the work on that one. Uh, okay, this is a very familiar building to many of you, I trust. Originally, the Chanticleer Lounge, Charles and Eager Streets, finished in 1939, designed by John Poe Tyler. Garrison Junior High School, Garrison Boulevard and Barrington Road, completed in 1932, designed by Smith and May. And the University of Maryland Hospital at Green and Redwood Streets, uh, 1934, designed by Herbert G. Crisp and James R. Edmonds, Jr. Now, if we can switch to the Washington pictures, I'll show you uh, some Art Deco design from your neighboring city to the south. University Hospital they built all around it, so you can't even tell really much about it anymore. Yeah. These, this is the majestic apartment house, 16th Street Northwest, just above Meridian Hill Park, but on the other side of 16th Street, 1937, um, built by Kayfritz Construction Company, Morris Kayfritz being one of the most um, prominent real estate developers in Washington during the 1930s. His architectural team uh, of Alvin Aubino and Harry L. Edwards designed this and most of the other Kayfritz apartment buildings. This is a garden apartment complex, Washington's counterpart to the Semester Parkway. Um, the Park Crest Gardens, W Street, 42nd Street, Benton Street, Northwest, in Glover Park, just south of American University in Washington, D.C., 1941, designed by a very, very prolific Washington architect, George T. Santmeyers, who specialized in apartment house design. He designed some large apartment buildings, but particularly excelled uh, at garden apartments like this. Um, during the Great Depression and the New Deal in Washington, 
Washington, D.C. became a proving ground uh, for a number of uh, building types, some of them not brand new, but in the early crucial stages of development. Garden apartments, uh, for example, uh, neighborhood shopping centers, especially shopping centers that were motor age accessible. Washington became one of the major testing grounds for this sort of motor age commercial architecture nationally. Uh, Some of the themes were derived from experimentation that was done in L.A. in the 20s, but brought together in unique ways in Washington, D.C. Why? Because during the Depression, uh, Washington and a few other cities actually expanded in population due to the influx of the New Deal workforce. You had the uh, market power to sustain a proliferation of movie theaters, garden apartments, neighborhood shopping centers, and so on. So D.C. is particularly rich in some of these building types. And of course, during World War II, and this applies to Baltimore as well, the wartime expansion uh, sustained uh, more building campaigns of, of these kinds. I mentioned Morris Kafritz in connection to the uh, Majestic Apartments. This is the living room of the Kafritz house. A mansion on Fox Hall Road, northwest, built in 1936 and 1937, designed by Alvin Aubineau and Harry Edwards, the same team that did the uh, Kafritz apartment buildings. The interior was the work of a designer named Eugene Shane. Um, By the early 1990s, the the interior of this house, including the custom-designed furnishings, were completely intact. But after Morris Kafritz and his wife Gwendolyn Kafritz passed away, well, the children were frankly uh, not agreed as to how to dispose of the property. Uh, And the consensus decision that prevailed was to sell off the furnishings, which went to the Dallas Museum of Art, and to sell the school and property. The ideal solution would have been for a wealthy family to purchase the whole thing and keep it all together. Uh, That's not what happened. It was uh, the house and grounds were purchased by a... uh, a private school, the field school, which has in many ways treated the building uh, with great care, except that every single room is in use as a classroom, so there's wear and tear you know, on a lot of the building fabric, which is uh, too bad. Here's another Art Deco house. Melissa took this picture. How do you like that? 2915 University Terrace Northwest, South uh, Wesley Heights. 1949 was the year of this one. Designed by Howard D. Woodson and William Nixon. One was an engineer, one was a high school art teacher. They were both African Americans, uh, and this was, so far as I can tell, a unique collaboration. It was designed to be the home of William Nixon's daughter. An early commercial uh, Art Deco building in Washington, 1932, Brownlee's Building on F Street Northwest designed by the firm of Porter and Lockie, which by the 1930s specialized in commercial buildings. The original entrance was removed years ago, but in recent years, the, the ornamentation has been to some extent replicated. Not a you know dead-on restoration, but an approximation. So if you look at the building on F Street today, you'll see something like this, not exactly the same. A building that is, I'm sure, familiar to many of you, the Heck Company Warehouse, New York Avenue Northeast, 1937. Designed by a big engineering firm in New York, Abbott Merckt and Company, founded in 1922 by Hunsley Abbott and Otto Merckt. Uh, and that was all anybody knew about it until a colleague of mine, architectural historian uh, Richard Longstreth, uh, who uh, taught and still teaches at GW, 
did some research and tracked down uh, the uh, people who still own what remained of the Abbott Mert firm and got mm-hmm. access to some surviving records and found that apparently this building was the work of a designer in the firm named Gilbert Steele. Uh, we have tried so far without success to find out anything at all about Mr. Steele, but that's what the records indicate. Astonishing design, a warehouse, except it was designed to be more. Uh, what emerged from Longstreet's research was the finding that uh, the Heck Company, Baltimore-based department store, but with a big expansion plan for Washington, D.C. They had a store on uh, 7th Street Northwest, and they were embarked on a major expansion program. And during the middle of the Great Depression, this was noteworthy. Uh, they were uh, putting air conditioning into their stores. They built this remote delivery station. This was cutting edge in the retail trade. Instead of taking up valuable square footage in the store itself, you buy cheap land, you know, at a remote location, close to railroads, you know, shipping, uh, and you you work it out so that you can uh, offload the the storage uh, to that destination and build an efficient transport system to make it all work. Um, But when this building was designed, the thought was, if in the future demographic shifts make it possible to convert this warehouse to a full-fledged department store, the building will be ready. (laughs) Uh, This building won nationwide renown in 1937 for its use of glass block. The corner tower with that faceted crown uh, is designed to be lit up at night and was. Uh, This building is a designated District of Columbia landmark. But uh, landmark status, at least in Washington, D.C., and elsewhere, too, I'm sorry to say, does not necessarily confer the highest, best level of protection. A lot depends upon politics, and many times the regulatory commissions who oversee these historic resources play fast and loose with the integrity of the building. And this was a scary situation for a little while within the past few years because a developer built it with the idea of turning it into an office building and... and, uh, the initial idea was to remove all the glass block and just replace it with simple glass panes, which, of course, would have utterly ruined the building. I'm happy to say that those plans were uh, abandoned, and uh, now the building is going to be used for residential lofts, and uh, the glass block retained. Where the original glass block has deteriorated, it will be replaced in kind, and that work is beginning now. Terrible loss, the Translux Theater, two blocks from the White House, Uh, 14th Street Northwest, completed in 1937, designed by Thomas Lamb of New York, who designed a number of different kinds of buildings, but theaters were one of his uh, specialties. Absolutely glorious example of uh, streamlined late 1930s architecture. This was a theater, but it was more. It was an office building as well. It was a mixed-use building, and you see a little bit of the the lettering on the side there, Translux Building. This was a terrible loss. 1975, this building was demolished, and there were several other losses on on that scale and of that magnitude in the 1970s. I'll never forget, you know, standing on the sidewalk watching the wrecking ball hit that thing. Um, And after a few experiences like that and some other changes in my personality, I decided that... uh, (laughs) The next time that wrecking ball was ready to swing, I would say, oh, God. (laughs) Not so fast. This is a 1938 shot of the interior of the Silver Theater, the object of that 20-year preservation struggle I told you about. This was taken in 1938. 
The theater shopping center complex was designed by John Eberson's firm in New York. The interiors were subcontracted to the interior design firm of Rambush. <laughs> this bar uh, with a concealed bartender uh, was in the Carlton Club and Garden in the Carlton Hotel, 16th Street Northwest, just uh, two blocks north of, of, uh, of uh, uh, the White House. Uh, the designer was uh, Nat Eastman. Um, this bar was perhaps inspired by the automats in New York City. The bartender sat concealed inside, and, and then your drink would appear as if by magic in one of these revolving, you know. <laughs> An architect's rendering for the Greyhound Terminal in Washington, D.C. There at the bottom you see Wishmeyer, Aerosmith, and Ellswick of Louisville, Kentucky. Uh, Greyhound... Uh, another one of these firms that, notwithstanding the Great Depression, was was thriving. You know, boldly expanding its operations. Um, Motorbus transport was in its infancy during the 1920s. Um, but uh, in Minnesota, an entrepreneur named Carl Eric Wickman began consolidating several regional bus lines. And by the early 1930s, Greyhound Lines was a national network. And by the end of the 1930s, when this building was designed, Greyhound was an astonishing business achievement. It connected thousands of communities that had no railroad link. Uh, this building was called the Super Terminal, <laughs> the grand, uh, grand central of the motor bus world, when it opened in 1940 in Washington, D.C. Uh, this was the object of the preservation campaign uh, that I described to you before. It resulted in a compromise. Um, Greyhound... Uh, finding itself in possession of the single most valuable piece of commercial real estate in the city, decided they could relocate their bus operations somewhere else in the mid-1980s. They sold the site with a lease-back option to continue to run buses out of there a little while longer, but then the site was on the market, changing hands you know, among speculative developers as the price went steadily upward uh, each time the building flipped. The same law firm handled all the transactions. Uh, anyway... Uh, the architects retained by a series of developers proposed, big surprise, to build a full FAR, you know, Class A office building and save a thin slice facade project, yes? And we said, no, <laughs> no, you're not going to do that. And it took a lot of struggling uh, to force uh, the solution that finally emerged, uh, the solution being... Uh, the terminal saved uh, completely, but with the office building built over the rear loading <coughs> drum. Uh, not an optimal preservation outcome, but an optimal preservation outcome of that value of real estate in Marion Barry's Washington, D.C. in 1987-1988 was just not to be had. We stopped this from being uh, facademized. <laughs> Oops, did I say that? You never heard it. The Folger Shakespeare Library, begun in 1928, completed in 1932, East Capitol Street Southeast, designed by Paul Philippe Cray, and here you see one of the leading exemplars of modernized classicism. Um, Cray did a number of really interesting things with this building, not least of all inverting the, the uh, um, uh, classical order, putting the uh, bas-relief sculpture at the base of the building instead of up, you know, in the entablature. Um, an amazing beautiful design that was hailed all over the country uh, when the building was completed, and it's easy enough to see <laughs> the uh, visual link uh, to this building. Uh, same general scheme, 
this is Greenbelt Center School, that school building that we saved in 1983, the architectural centerpiece of the New Deal planned town, uh, designed by Douglas Ellington and Reginald Wadsworth, who designed all of the buildings in Greenbelt. And here you see the same you know, program with the bas-relief panels at the bottom, uh, at the bottom of each window bay, uh, between each window bay. In this case, they're, they're, uh, in, in the case of the Folger, they were fluted pilasters. In the case of this building, they're projecting fins, which actually form the outward edge of an overhead system of uh, trusses that, that uh, bear the load in this portion of the building, which is a gymnasium and auditorium. This is a detail of the Library of Congress Annex. Building designed in 1930, approved by the Commission of Fine Arts in 1930, and then built very slowly over the course of the decade, finally opening its doors in 1939, and the final interior artwork completed in 1941, designed by the D.C. firm of Pearson and Wilson. Um, this building is generally in fine condition today. Uh, it exemplifies uh, one unfortunate uh, trend of... Uh, thinking on Capitol Hill. <laughs> this building, uh, when it was built, uh, was designed to have mural artwork in the twin reading rooms uh, on the fifth floor. And one of the reading rooms had been finished when a new librarian of Congress, Archibald McLeish, was appointed by uh, President Roosevelt. And uh, the murals in the north reading room depicted scenes from Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, the um, mural program for the South Room had yet to be determined, and Archibald MacLeish told the muralist Ezra Winter, in light of Thomas Jefferson's supreme importance in the history of the Library of Congress, it would be fitting to paint murals depicting themes of Jefferson's life and thought. And so there's a Thomas Jefferson reading room with murals of Jefferson. This building was simply known as the Library of Congress Annex from the 1930s to the mid-1970s when it was renamed the Thomas Jefferson Building. But it's not that anymore. No, ten years later, some great thinkers on Capitol Hill decided that naming this dumpy old pile from the 30s after Jefferson was an insufficient honor for the great man. No, the original Library of Congress, the Beaux-Arts masterpiece, you know, from the 1890s should be called the Jefferson Building. So that became the Jefferson Building, and this is, for no reason whatsoever, the John Adams Building. Why? Well, it just plain is. With his Jefferson reading room, you know, and everything else. Adams did have a good library. Oh, I'm sure he did. I'm a great admirer of John Adams, but, you know, in this particular case, I'm not happy with the outcome. And I'm going to close with this floral motif uh, in the ground floor elevator lobby of the Library of Congress Annex, done in aluminum and bronze. That is the uh, cover design selected by the book designers at Johns Hopkins University Press for our volume. And now I think I've probably talked about enough. And uh, you might have questions. You might want to uh, begin a conversation. And if so, I would be delighted to talk to you. Thank you for your, uh, thank you for your friendliness. Yes, sir. Yes, sir, here. Uh, yes, sorry. I didn't mean to jump the gun on the applause. Oh, no. But uh, I want to, uh, I also am a D.C. native. I grew up a block from Western Avenue on the Maryland side. And uh, one of my fondest memories is uh, taking buses downtown in my early teens in the early 60s. As you recall, there were about a dozen movie palaces downtown oh, then. Oh, yes. All gone now, um, but uh, except for the Warner, of course, and the Uptown, which is Uptown, which not is downtown. Cleveland Park, yeah. Uh, but um, I... 
Love these buildings. I didn't know what they were called. The Kennedy Warren, just a block down from the uptown. Yes. The Shoreham Hotel. Uh, of course, the... Um, those are all in our book. The tra are they? Great. Oh, That's okay. great. Uh, the Translux, of course. was. I mean, that. I, I'm sorry you reminded me of that. It's very yeah. depressing. But, um, and the Apex Theater in Spring Valley, that bit the dust two years Exactly. Later. That's where... Also designed by John Jacob Zink of Baltimore. Yeah, that was, that was a, almost, that was just a couple blocks from the Maryland line. A beautiful, beautiful theater. Really beautiful. Uh, first place I saw The Wizard of Oz. I was six years old, scared the hell out of me. <laughs> the, the flying monkeys and the green face of the witch uh, affected me to this day. But... Um, <laughs> A uh, couple questions. Uh, well, I not, have a little anecdote to tell you about the Wicked Witch. Please go on. Uh, but um, things that I, I sort of uh, detected, I, I don't really know that much about Art Deco. It's just sort of like, you know, like the old adage about art. I know what I like. If it's Art Deco, I don't know. But um, there was a movie made, uh, I think, 1934 with uh, Boris Karloff and Bela Lugosi, The Black Cat. I don't know if you're familiar with I've that. I've heard I know of it, but I haven't seen it. You've got to see it. There Good. is so much great, um, and it's and it's not, uh, you know, it's it's. Uh, I don't know what maybe a higher cinematic or literary value than a lot of the movies uh, that they made, but um, it's it's got it reminds me of a German uh, impressionistic uh, silent film. And I'm sure some of those refugees oh, from Germany. Oh, a number of, of the uh, early Universal horror films were yes, aesthetically yes. gorgeous. Yeah, I King mean, Kong the, the has a lot. with Karloff, 1932. Uh, the lighting values, yeah. the aesthetics of that movie. Yeah, oh, absolutely. And it, and it also it takes advantage, of course, of the Egyptian setting to have the deco yes. sort of uh, detail. Mm -hmm. But um, another thing, I was wondering, uh, the, uh, the bullet-nosed Studebaker designed by Raymond Lowy, can that be considered Art Deco? Uh, it has the wraparound uh, rear win window with the, uh, the vertical chrome bars and such? Sure. Uh, you can, uh, if you wish, uh, conclude that I'm just uh, fudging things, wimping out, taking the easy you know, side door uh, when it comes to these definitional problems. But what can I say? Does it relate? Of course it relates right. uh, to the streamlined fad of the 1930s. Uh, some call it a separate style. Go in peace, brethren. Call it a separate style. There's some logic to that, except for the fact that in these eclectic mixtures, you find all of these things converging and overlapping, and, and what does that give you? It gives you eclectic <laughs> mixtures of things. Um, you've, uh, I find it best as a scholar um, when constructing... Uh, uh, interpretive uh, uh, pathways to articulate the meanings of things. Um, it's, it's a two-way street. I mean, our minds do create constructions that we find useful to articulate the form and meaning of various things that are out there. But to a certain extent, it's got to be allowed to emanate from the stuff itself. It is what it is. We can impute to it as well as elicit from it. We must interpret it. We must find and articulate the patterns in it. But there are certain patterns that are in it, and uh, they are what they are. And scholars sometimes drive themselves and everybody else, you know, to near distraction by, by trying to force these perfect, you know, pseudo-scientific definitions right. of, of things with no ambiguities at all. Nonsense. It is what it is. Uh, so the best we can do in a lot of cases is just approximate. 
Well, thank you so much for saving those buildings. I mean, oh, as a welcome. Washingtonian, I live in Baltimore now because I can't afford Washington. Nah, you and but, a lot of uh, but thank you so much. Oh, yes, sir. In fact, my grandfather, besides that famous Studebaker that my grandfather also had, my father was a mechanic and an electronics expert at the time from World War II and uh, the Marine Corps. But I was not as mechanical as my father, but my father's first car was the, ninth, I believe it's the 1934 Chrysler Airflow. Oh, yeah. yeah. Now, this car, if you all have not seen one, the doors opened up, the front doors opened this way, the back doors opened this way, and my father did a, a one-year cross-country trip in a Chrysler Airflow. And for years afterwards, my father would always say that car epitomized the entire decade. So even though Art Deco is considered architecture as far as buildings, I often think that often these phases also can be expanded into clothing styles, oh, yes. cars, and such. And the, the two of the Art Deco cars I always thought of, like I said, was the, was the Chrysler Airflow that had a front to it that was very sculpted, almost looked a little bit like much later VW Beetle, and, and, and the famous uh, Studebaker and, and its front end. And maybe even if you ever got a chance to see one, that famous uh, car that they made the uh, uh, movie about, the Tucker. Oh, yeah, sure. Revolutionary car. I agree with all that. Yeah, I can give yeah, you a few yeah, more examples, yeah. too. Oh, one other thing, too, is as a child, I was brought up here at age 10 by my mother in the days when you didn't worry about letting kids run around by themselves. She showed me where the library was, where the theater district was along Howard Street, where the diners were, the little tavern, and where the Maryland Historical Society was. And then a few years later, I dragged my little brother up, and we would be up and downtown all day long and going to the library. And early on, I learned on a streetcar and a transit bus to look up and constantly look at architecture and cornices everywhere I go. To this day, I think I'd like to found a Cornice Preservation Society <laughs> to match the Painted Screen Society because our cornices are dying by the thing. But congratulations oh, to you yes, for sir. Art Deco. I I'll love give it. you a few more examples of streamlined automotive vehicles from the 30s. If any of you are traveling through Indiana, uh, and can spare some time to head uh, to the northeast, to Fort Wayne area. In Auburn, Indiana, just south of Fort Wayne, there is a museum uh, that was the showroom for the uh, Auburn Motor Car Company. Uh, several independent companies came together under umbrella ownership of Auburn in the 1930s, but there were three makes, Auburn, Cord, and Duesenberg. Uh, they were all cars for the wealthy. Uh, in fact, the Duesenberg, I think this is right, uh, you just bought you know, the, the prow and the chassis. If you were rich enough to afford that, you would have a body shop design your own custom car. Many Hollywood stars had them. But the Cord in 1937, it was called the Coffin Front Model, uh, a sculpted, uh, <laughs> um, sculpted hood uh, with, with uh, uh, horizontal ribbing and retracting headlights in the fenders. Uh, the Auburn, uh, they made a number of different body styles, but the really snazzy one was the Auburn Boat Tail Speedster. Uh, most of these cars were designed by Gordon Burig, uh, who was uh, um, a master designer of, of streamlined vehicles in the 1930s. And anyway, they've got this museum, a 1931 Art Deco auto showroom with 
pendant light fixtures, terrazzo floors, you know, these gorgeous, luxurious, streamlined vehicles just sitting there. I, admission was free. The last time I went, it's, it's definitely worth a trip. More questions? Uh, yes, sir. Yeah, quickly. I, um, if you're headed out that way to Indiana, I have two other stops, the Packard Museum in Dayton, Ohio, and a lot of the post-war Packards, and some of the pre-war Packards have a lot of that deco sort of thing. And that's free also. And uh, in southern Indiana, I'm sure you're very familiar with this, Columbus, Indiana, the town where Cummins Diesel yes. was made. The, this, it's hard to believe in corporate age nowadays, but the Cummins Diesel... All company, 20th century modernism. Yes. Yeah. Spent millions and millions of dollars on civic ar and corporate architecture in that town. Yeah. And it's spectacular. All avant-garde modernism. And perfectly maintained. Yeah. That's absolutely right. Yes, ma'am. It seems as though we're on a road show here. Um, I'm going to take you to Hamilton, Ohio, which is due north of Cincinnati by 25 or 30 miles. Um, the reason I'm saying this ha has two reasons. First of all, I'm sitting in a library. But secondly, the Art Deco part. Um, the Caldecott winner, twice Caldecott winner, Robert McCloskey, whom you know all for Make Way for Ducklings, probably a lot of you in this room, uh, was from Hamilton, Ohio. In fact, this year they are celebrating his centennial in Hamilton. When he was 19 years old, he was asked and did design 19 medallions, ball relief medallions, for their brand new city hall, which of course in 1934-35 uh, was Art Deco in design. It is no longer the city hall it is, or municipal building, it's now actually the city museum. But if you go to Hamilton today, you can see Robert McCloskey, but with a very different uh, slant of his art in his bar relief. Well, thank you for sharing that. Yes, sir. Um, I love the uh, typography, um, the lettering. Um, a good example is the Senator Movie Theater. And it's so simple, and yet it's so striking, um, most letter lettering isn't like that. It's much more complex. And um, when I look at it, I think of something that's like Dutch or something like distigital. I don't, I don't know how to pronounce the word, but am I making a connection that makes sense? And do you have any comment on that? Oh, yes, you are making a connection that makes sense. Typography was one of, of uh, many different design forms that was part of a continuum of influence. Uh, and there were competing influences. You know, uh, design was being taken in different directions. It would sometimes diverge, sometimes converge, and uh, uh, many designers, whatever their ideological convictions and personal predilections, strove uh, to create a Gesamtkunstwerk, you know, a building with, with a completely coherent, you know, identity, consistent, inside and out. And uh, down to the details of lettering, uh, absolutely, they, they would pursue it zealously. Um, the best of them, anyway. And you can see this attention to detail in so many buildings from that era. Someone mentioned the Kennedy Warren apartment house in Washington, D.C., 1931, uh, on Connecticut Avenue, just above the National Zoo. Uh, the, the detail goes down to the, the, the knockers on the doors, you know, of, of the individual apartment doors. In the Library of Congress annex, 
that floral motif that you saw in aluminum and bronze over the elevator door, replicated on frosted glass panes of, of pendant lighting fixtures, on the back of wooden reading room chairs, every imaginable surface, large, small, you know, the theme is, is repeated for mnemonic effect. Uh, it's, it's astonishing. Yes, ma'am. I have two comments. I'm remembering the gas station. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. I'm from upstate New York. Yeah. Um, I'm from upstate New York, Liberty, New York. And... I miss, they, they destroyed some beautiful old Art Deco gas stations. They were beautiful. Yes, they were. Um, and in terms of preservation values, some building types uh, have uh, just been blown off the face of the earth. You know, 1930s hamburger stands, mm. 1930s gas stations. Uh, we give due attention to this in the book and uh, comment on the trends, commercial, cultural, what have you, that have impoverished our architectural heritage in this way. It's easy to scorn uh, vernacular buildings like that, uh, but they have uh, great significance. And now, just in terms of sheer rarity, uh, Melissa discovered an Art Deco gas station out in Cadensville that I'd never noticed before. I'd driven Frederick Road many times, and then I'd you know, slow down and look more carefully. It's now an automotive repair shop, but it's, you know, I think it's terracotta building and it's, it's largely intact. Well, that's wondrous. I mean, how many times do you see that? You're absolutely right. And, and another comment. I grew up in a home that was... My parents took a, a, a design. It was an Art Deco house, and our, our dinette was glass brick. Yes. I do not understand why anybody <laughs> who has experienced living with glass brick would do it again. <laughs> um, I mean, it seemed to stay around. We had several rounded things with glass brick. I mean, it's nice. It lets the sun in, but it's... The, the various times my mother had to arrange for draperies to go around that. It's cold. Um, why did they do it? Because it looked cool. That's why. And, and, and I mean, the, the property of translucence had a certain functional logic to commend it, you know, for use in fenestration, but applied to other surfaces. No, it just looked terrific. It looked sexy. It looked, you know, nifty. So, so it, they just did it. <laughs> Simple as that. Symbolism. I would love to. <laughs> Before we sold our house, I went around and took photographs of unusual, like. The master bathroom had like vaulted ceiling-ish stuff, and there were lots of arches and rounded yeah, fantasy stuff. Yeah, um, that's right. Just playful. Hmm. I, I, I guess I've had an enchanted child. <laughs> well, it's also a matter of taste, you know. Uh, uh, we're all entitled to that, and we all have different tastes. Thank God. Uh, except when uh, preservation, you know, uh, war of abuse, <laughs> rhetorical abuse begins. And many times, you know, in the course of these campaigns, I had to withstand gales of abuse, you know, from people who were uh, all too eager to proclaim that the building was ugly and stupid. <laughs> well, thank you for that observation. Uh, you're certainly entitled to it, uh, you know. Um, but. What I finally had to do was to put on my professorial mortarboard and say, as historian, uh, regardless of whether you think it's pretty, it has historic significance. It teaches accurately about a certain period from our past. And if you want, if you want your kids to learn accurately, 
accurately about the way things were and the way things came to be. Uh, perhaps from time to time we have to live and let live when it comes to matters of architectural taste. No, you say not? Go in peace, but we're saving the building. <laughs> See if we don't. Uh, it often you know, devolved uh, into that sort of thing. You know, it's funny, in the history of preservation, that has a history too. Things come in phases. Uh, at times when uh, historians were the moving forces behind preservation, it was historic significance as in history with a capital H, as in did George Washington sleep there? I mean, macro-historical events. Um, well, that has its merit, certainly. I teach in a town, Chestertown, that can boast you know, that George Washington did indeed set foot here and there. It was the architectural profession, led uh, in some cases by AIA, that began to argue that regardless of whether George Washington slept there, the building as design, you know, has importance in and of itself. All right, yesterday's liberation, tomorrow's tyranny. <laughs> By the time I arrived, architectural taste was driving, you know, the, the debate so much that history was getting forgotten and lost. Uh, and so it goes. You know, you've got, you've got to be mindful of all the many different facets of significance and... Uh, we're all entitled to taste. I, I gave a lecture on preservation ethics <laughs> preservation conference once where I had to confess uh, that I didn't know of any preservationist who had led a crusade to save a building they hated. <laughs> of course it's personal affinity. Uh, it can't just be personal affinity. You've got to build that case for historic significance because you're not doing this just for your noble self. You're doing it for those who will come later. You know, the preservation will hopefully outlive you. That's what it's all about, an intergenerational. Uh, achievement. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, if, you know, I do have my own subjective preferences when it comes to the built environment, don't we all? And to a large extent, that's good. Except when it collides, you know, with a case for heritage protection. And so I had to tell my audience, well, you know what? The gods laugh. The time will come when preservationists lead a campaign to save a building I've just wanted to see blown off the face of the earth for so long. And if I still call myself a preservationist, I'll have to bite my tongue and shut up. Good for me. Yes, sir. I just looked through your book. Nice. Um, it, you have a photograph of a house out on Colesville Road in Silver Spring. If yes. I remember correctly, there were like three or four of those yes, houses were. together. Are they still there? most definitely still there, the polychrome houses, designed by uh, a very interesting designer named John Joseph Early, who had a studio in Roslyn, Virginia. He specialized in exposed concrete aggregate, sort of like terrazzo, but, but left rough, colored pebbles, you know, uh, um, gathered into decorative patterns. Uh, he was a master of that medium, and in addition... He was a master of prefabrication. Uh, he designed prefabricated houses to be built with these uh, exposed so aggregate like tilting, concrete panels. In a sense. Now, polychrome house number one, 1934, Coalfield Road. Uh, he uh, built about uh, half a dozen of them on that. Well, I went lots. to school in Silver Spring, and that was 50 years ago, so mm -hmm. I remember them from that. Yeah. I just didn't know if they were still there. Oh, they're still there. We were able to get them protection in Montgomery County, Maryland. Uh, and providentially, when the D.C. Beltway was built just south of them, <laughs> it like missed them. hundred yards. Yeah. Early, I mean, there, there are a number of surviving examples of his work. One of them is in Federal Triangle in the Justice Department building in one of the um, gateway entrances to the interior courtyards of the Justice Department building. There is a polychrome concrete mosaic ceiling 
that the early studio was commissioned to design. <coughs> and one of the interesting things about that is that um, the architects, the Philadelphia firm of Zanzinger, Bory, and Madari, decided um, that um, to make certain that the panels would never fall off. The studio was to fabricate them in such a way that they would be assembled as the mold for the concrete, you know, for the floor above that would be poured into them so they were bonded that way. Uh, the colors haven't seemed to fade, you know, in years. Um, the precise chemical formula for the colors uh, tragically uh, vanished when the early studio burned in the mid-1950s. But he did work in a number of cities. He was Washington-based. Fascinating designer. Yes, sir. Um, I noticed you mentioned, of course, the Senator Theater here in Baltimore and the Ambassadors. Um, in Washington, as you know, 18th and Columbia Road, there was the Ambassador Theater and Grand Movie Palace. And then there was the Senator Theater, which was in Northeast Washington. Yeah, we led a campaign to save that one, and it came to no happy end. Were they all designed by the same architect? Uh, the, the senator in Washington was designed by John Jacob Zink, just like the senator in Baltimore. Very, very different buildings in their composition. In 1989, the Art Deco Society of Washington tried to get landmark status for the Washington Senator Theater. And uh, the politics became terrible uh, for reasons I really don't have the time to go into. It's an awful story. If you're interested in the tawdry details, I donated all the records of my preservation casework to the Historical Society of Washington, D.C. And it's all there, you know, the good, the bad, and the ugly. The members of that Historic Preservation Review Board, who did the most cowardly thing imaginable, the law firm representing the owners, trumped up this farcical argument to the effect that the entrance pavilion to the theater was structurally a different building, you know, from the auditorium. <laughs> Welcome to the Mad Hatter's Tea Party. Uh, what they wanted was to blow away the auditorium and, and clear the site as much as possible to do whatever they wanted. And because the politics were what they were, and because the members of the Historic Preservation Review Board were afraid of oh, opening Pandora's box, you know, politically, in a lot of ways, uh, they, they just held their noses and, and approved that staff report. And so the entrance pavilion, you know, was protected and preserved, you know, to this day, while the perfectly, you know, uh, intact auditorium was, was blown away. Uh, you never know. Uh, it, it's always potentially a fight about something because of politics and money. <coughs> yes, sir. I need to add that real quick to something going on in downtown today. Growing up, I always knew that Victorian was always considered ugly. I mean, all the time as my childhood, every time I read something in the paper, Victorian was ugly and it would be torn down, often to be replaced by something more modern. But in any way, I was always also taught that there was this wonderful, beautiful, new type of architecture that we have now in downtown Baltimore, which was called Brutalist. 20th century. Now, as the years went by, and I kept looking at the Morris Mechanic Theater as the center point in, in Charles Center, I kind of slowly started liking it, though it was a difficult process. Then, just five years ago, after all the millions of dollars spent telling us about how bland and glorious Charles Center made Baltimore in the 1958 59. They had to go through and tear down all the skyways and rearrange it because those people thought they knew better architecture than the people who originally won World Designs and, and, uh, and designed Charles Center. So they, they blown away most of Charles Center that I grew up with, and it's sterile when I walk through it now. 
The Mars Mechanic Theater sits there with these huge signs in its window showing the brand new high rise that they're going to build there and keep a little portion of the two sides, sort of like what you were saying, just leave the little front in the front. And, and I am afraid, and like I said, we'll probably have this battle. I may not necessarily like brutals, but it's one of the few types of that style of architecture in this city, and, and I just like the fact there's a theater there, and I just don't want it torn down to put a skyscraper there. Bully for you. I, yeah. I feel the same way. Yeah. So I, I personally can't stand brutalist architecture, but I long ago told myself, Richard, that doesn't matter. <laughs> that doesn't matter. Much larger issue than what you happen to like. All right. If it has historic significance and a case to, to be made for preservation, uh, that's the priority I decided on for myself. And they were able to restore the Hippodrome, which had been so denigrated itself for close to 30 years, sitting over there neglected over on Utah Street. Yeah. So now we also have four or five empty lots in downtown Baltimore with parking lots from the Grand Hotels, like the Emerson Hotel, the Southern Hotel, all of which we've lost, and we just have nothing but, sorry, garbage in, in its place. And I have to admit, oh, they want to talk about Baltimore and its history, buddy. I'm getting tired of us tearing down our heritage. If we had not built Charles Center, if you ever saw the pictures of what downtown Baltimore looked like, we would have the greatest collection of early 20th century architecture the world had ever seen. I have a question for you. Are you active in the preservation movement? I do try it when I can. Good. <laughs> because preservation needs that kind of energy, that kind of gut-level commitment. Uh, I'll tell you, you know, we got into these preservation battles. It can take over your life. It's absolutely exhausting, and you become something like a fanatic after a while. Um, for a while, uh, it takes great strength to carry on. After a while, you're so deeply into it, it would take greater strength to give up. You know, you just have to keep going. Uh, but it takes energy. For 20 years, that really disturbed me when they tell you about all the great building they're going to have, and all we've had for 20 years is a parking lot. Yeah. At the McCormick Spice Plant. Yep. Okay. In the back. Uh, let's just have this be the last question, Margaret. The facade of the building that you showed on F Street uh, to me has one of the aspects of Art Deco that I actually really love, which is that exotic Egyptian. Arabian Nights, Moorish influence, and I don't know how well represented it is in the Baltimore, D.C. area, but can you speak to that a little bit? Well, uh, I can. There are a lot of uh, examples in Washington of the ornate um, decorative vocabulary of Art Deco, much of which came from the Paris Exposition, and much of which was the work of the uh, sculptor and, and designer Edgar Brandt. Uh, a lot of that floral ornamentation. Uh, emanated from the Paris Exposition and spread with astonishing speed, you know, around the world. Um, but as for Baltimore, my co-author Melissa is better uh, positioned to, to answer that question. And I've been talking too much, and she hasn't okay. been talking enough. No, please. You're right, we don't have too much of that. Um, but I would draw attention to, if you're not familiar with it, the 200 block of West Lexington, um, the area where the proposed uh, super block uh, there's a there's some great little buildings along that, that uh, south side of, of Lexington, and one of them is the McCrory Building. Uh, yes. It has the uh, the colorful facade. Uh, that's a really special building. We have to make sure that doesn't fall 
also um, get destroyed or turn into a facade Please, let's say thank you so much to Dr. Strainer and Melissa Blair. We have copies of the book for sale outside at $30, which is a great reduction in price. And um, Dr. Strainer, Melissa, if you'll sit up there um, at the front table sure. to sign copies, okay? Thank you again. Thank you all for coming.